0: thought as we were singing, what a wonderful thing it is to come together with conjoined commitment that has been fostered in us because of the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. Uh, That conjoined commitment brings forth animating hope because of who Jesus Christ is. I hope you understand that every scene in the book of Revelation of the victories of our God are followed by worship. So we are a people that worship the Lord God because ultimately the victory that has been won. Remember, uh, John saw the throne of the Lord and the saints worshiping the king. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So we come together this morning uh, in continuity with all the saints before us and the saints already in glory worshiping the king. What a wonderful blessing that is. The second to the last verse in the book of Revelation says, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon. John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. What a great verse of scripture. Second to the last verse of Revelation reminds us that Jesus Christ is coming again. The refrain of my heart is, come Lord Jesus and do so quickly. I hope yours is the same. The apocalypse or the book of Revelation, that is the word, the the word revelation is the word apocalypse, is all about the greatness of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thankful for the clear, unambiguous theme of the book of Revelation. It is the unveiling of the king, and it's the promise of his return. Now, that much we know of the book of Revelation, right? It is the portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it reminds us that he is coming again. One commentator said, Revelation is a book that has puzzled, confused, and frustrated the minds of the greatest scholars who ever lived. I wouldn't consider myself a scholar, but I would tell you that I've been puzzled and confused And frustrated at times reading the book of Revelation. Because it's not easy to know exactly what the Lord God is telling us. But praise God for the clear theme. The unveiling of Christ the King. And the portrait of the fact and promise that He is coming again. So regardless of where you think or what you think the book of Revelation is or what it is about... I want to start off by telling you there are two indisputable facts that we have to bring into our minds before we begin to interpret the book of Revelation. Now, my goal is to talk to you about the church and the state and the book of Revelation. Are you all ready for that? All right. That's the goal today, but I have to give you some backdrop. First, I want you to understand that Revelation is written with a rich Old Testament background. So it's pretty much impossible for you to dive into the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, without having an understanding of its Old Testament background. Scholars tell us that there are more than 280 Old Testament citations and 550 allusions to the Old Testament found in the book of Revelation. So I emphasize that once again. You have to know something about the Old Testament and what it is teaching in order to understand The apocalypse. The second thing I would tell you is that just like every other book of the New Testament and the Old, they all had a historical context, right? You can't divorce Revelation from its historical context. So, no matter what your view of Revelation is, you got to consider two indisputable things as we go into it Old Testament context and the historical context. And the historical context was, in fact, First century Roman Empire. That's the context. Okay? So again, the title of the sermon is Church, State, and the Book of Revelation. And we're going to unpack that today. Let's just read chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John... Who is John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Did y'all know that? All right, you got a track with me today. Help me preach the sermon. Or I'll have to start all over from the beginning, okay? And the Bible says, Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's what we're doing And blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's stop there. So let's ask the question first, what is the book of Revelation? And I've put that in an applicational division for you. I want you to embrace the marvelous message of the book of Revelation. And let's talk about that. What is the book of Revelation? Embracing that message for us today, folks, I'm telling you, you need to hear this today. Maybe more than ever in the history of the U.S., you certainly, or the national scene, you need to hear what Revelation says. Why? Because blessed is the one who reads it aloud. Blessed is the one who actually hears what it is and keeps what is written in it. That's a promise uh, that there's a blessing from the Lord, and so we need to hear this. The first thing I would like to say about embracing it is understand first that it is apocalyptic literature. It is something that is given to us by symbol and sign. That's what the word apocalypse means. Look, folks, the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Greek would read with an article, the apocalypse. That's the word. So we we know this. And the word means an unveiling. And what is it, the unveiling of? Well, the person and work Of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice this. My scripture text says which God gave him to show to his servants. Some of you may have to make known to his servant. Some of you may have the word communicated. So this is important. The best translation is to signify or signed. Now that's important. Why? Because when it comes to apocalyptic literature Uh, The best understanding is that of symbolic literature. And isn't it important that when John actually chose a verb, he chose the verb, it's really not shown or communicated, it's the word signed or to signify something to us, and it's symbolically expressed through his angel given to John. So when you study Revelation, keep that in mind. These are visions, symbols, signs, signed off, signified in order to give to us To understand who Christ is. Second, it's also a prophecy. Did you notice the word of God? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it is both apocalyptic, but it is also a prophecy. Richard Bauckham in his book, The Theology of Revelation, says this. It is is prophetic in the way it addresses a concrete situation. That of Christians in the Roman province of Asia toward the end of the first century. It brings to the readers a prophetic word from God, enabling them to discern the divine purposes in their situation and respond to their situation in a way that is appropriate to God's purpose. Is that any different than the condition we're in today? You understand that revelation is for every generation that has ever lived. Do we have some situations that Christians are not comfortable with today? Is there, when we look out on the horizon of the world, would, would we say that there is a concrete situation that we are in fact dealing with today? We are. So, when the Word of God uses a term like prophetic, it's not only to say to you that, that the writer is going to foretell what's going to happen in the future, but it's most important to remind you that you need wisdom in how to navigate today. You need Wisdom, how to make right decisions, how to have insight and wisdom in the present. So when you read something that the Bible says is prophetic, don't all of a sudden jump to, well, foretelling the future or to foretell. No, God is giving you this so you will know how to live today. He's telling you this so that you will have wisdom and insight. So what do we know so far? Well, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. Let's say it this way. It is an apocalyptic prophecy. And the point of the vision is to help the reader or listener, right? You, you either read this or you hear it aloud. That's what the text says. And God is doing this so you understand what's going on behind the scenes. Not everything in Washington that you see is the way it appears to be. There's something else going on behind the scenes. And that's exactly what God wants his readers and his listeners to hear. So this is nothing less than the purpose of God who is the true king. So this apocalyptic prophetic writing is given to first century Christians. Don't forget that. To see the scene singularly behind the scenes. This is why it's giving to us. So what do they see? Well, they see a Roman Empire and an emperor that is hostile toward Christianity. I hope you're not asleep. With your head in the sands. But it's not gonna get better for the church on this earth. It's not. It's gonna get worse. There's no telling what we will look like in 10 years. I can tell you that now. So, they see a Roman Empire that seems indomitable. But this is not all there is to see. Third, Revelation is an epistle. Not just apocalyptic literature, not just prophetic, but it is an epistle. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Doesn't this sound just like a normal epistolary introduction that Paul might give or, or, or James might give or Peter might give? It sounds like it's just the giving of a letter, right? That's going to be received. As a matter of fact, how do we know that this is a letter? Because there's going to be seven letters to how many churches? Seven. All right. Well, I gave you the that. Right? So we have these seven letters to Asia Minor churches. And the letter of Revelation is designed to be circular so that all seven churches get a copy of it. So that they know exactly how they're supposed to live in their current situation. Which is first century Roman Empire culture. So the entire prophecy would have been set as an epistle to seven churches And beyond, So the Lord God, through the Apostle John, wants the church to understand certain things. He wants them to realize that there is a cosmic battle going on. He wants them to understand that he has a divine purpose behind what you see. He wants the church to understand the goal of all of history. Our God is not just working behind the scenes. He's not just the reality behind the scenes. He has an ultimate goal. And he is moving this world toward that goal. We're not dealing with some kind of abstract omnipotence and say, well, he's all-powerful. We're not dealing with some abstract uh, omniscience that he knows everything and he's just sitting back and letting the world go. No, our God is working this world out according to his goal and his plan. So don't fret and don't fear. This is what we need to hear. So Revelation is not just pulling back the curtain to see what reality really is. It's seeing that there is an eschatological reality. Don't be afraid of that. Eschatoth means end times. Ology means study of. I can't say it any other way other than to tell you end time events. But it is eschatology. So, Revelation is concerned with the eschatological end. How does the eschaton end? And so, this terminology is important for us to see. It is designed to comfort the faithful. We need to be comforted today. In the U.S. It's designed to comfort those who are faithful. But it's also a reminder to those who might want to compromise that you better not do it. So it's to strengthen the faithful. But it's also a challenge to those who are tempted in the church to compromise. We all know the letters written to the seven churches are written to some that are faithful and some that are not. Just for example, what was wrong with Ephesus? You better not forget your first love. Don't move away from Christ the king. What about Smyrna? Well, you need to remain faithful to the Lord. Why did he tell them that? Because some of them were not remaining faithful. How about the church of Pergamum? Repent of false teaching. Does that get in the church sometimes? You better believe it. How about Laodicea? God is saying, please don't become indifferent. Don't be lukewarm. If you do, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's pretty strong terminology, right? Right. In other words, God says, you make me sick. So, there's a reminder to those who are faithful to remain faithful. And then to those who are tempted to compromise, God says, do not compromise. Look, folks, we will always face these issues as a church. Okay? Are you all with me so far? Apocalyptic, prophetic, it's a letter. And why were all the letters given in the Bible to us? To help us remain faithful. And to remind us not to compromise. Okay, here's the second big division. And this is going to be the longer one. Are you ready? Seek heaven's perspective to understand the divine purpose behind all things. Once you accept the message and embrace it, then you need to seek heaven's perspective of the divine purpose behind all things. So what, does, what perspective does John the Apostle get? Does he get the perspective of Rome and an emperor? No, he gets the perspective of Christ the king seated upon a throne. Right? That's the heavenly perspective. He gets, uh, he gets way more than the way things seem to appear on the earth where he is living. When the church is being persecuted like never before in the history of the world at this point. So if you think that things are the way they appear to be, then you don't understand the eternal and the temporal, folks. And part of the preacher's job is to get your head out of the temporal. And get your mind focused on the eternal. Set your affections on things above. If you don't understand the divine purpose behind all things, then you're going to miss it. And some of you are saying, come on preacher. Reality is what we see happening in Washington, D.C. But I want to remind you that many of us prefer to believe that there is a God who reigns in heaven. And his divine purpose is being worked out, even in all the ridiculousness of Washington. God Almighty is working. What does John see? Well, he sees the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hears about his character. Now, I believe in an early date of the writing of the book of Revelation. So... Let's just throw out a date of between 60 and 70 AD. I believe the temple was still in operation and had not been destroyed before the writing of Revelation. There are many others who believe in a later date of the writing of Revelation which would have put it somewhere around 95 AD. This is not a hill worth dying over. But I say that to remind you that you had one of two rulers as emperor based upon the date. If it was written in early... 60 to 70, who's the ruler? Nero. If it's written around 95, who's the ruler? Domitian. Okay? That's important for us to think about. Now, the fact of the matter is, if you were asked the question, who do you want to rule, Nero or Domitian, what would you say? Neither. So we would have had never Domitian people and never Nero people. There's no question about it when you were trying to decide which one's going to rule how much power did the emperor of the Roman Empire have all power if you know your history by first century AD Rome had had moved completely away from a republic it wasn't led by a senate at all it was led by one man and that was the emperor he ruled yet as John sees reality for what reality really is there's only one king that rules this world. Did y'all see that in the text? Verse 4. And the ruler. Verse 5. And the ruler of the kings on the earth. Do I need to rule that? Do I need to read that again? Who is the ruler of the kings of the earth? It is Christ Jesus the Lord. So that's what he sees. Now. How do we define him? Well, let's just look at one verse. I mean, Revelation is packed, but what about verse 8? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. The Almighty. So if we take out who is and who was and who is to come, it says, Lord God, the Almighty. Okay? So you really have three descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is that he is the Alpha and the Omega. Now, this phrase is used in 1.8, 1.17, 21.6, and 22.13. Twice it is used referring to the Son of God, Christ, and twice it is used to refer to God the Father. Why does this happen? Because John has a very high Christology. He believes that Jesus Christ is God. Do I have to remind you of John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Do I have to remind you of verse 3? Not anything in this world that was made, there's nothing that was made in this world that was not made by Christ. He is the actual creator. So John has a very high view of the person of Christ. What is the idea of Alpha and Omega? It has something to do with creator, and Lord of history. In other words, he's Lord past, present, and future. The Alpha and the Omega really define is the origin and the goal of absolutely all things. Ultimate reality in that day was not Nero. Ultimate reality was not Domitian or the Roman Empire. Ultimate reality rests in the one who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the origin and the goal of all things. We need to hear this today. The truth is the Roman Empire ends up ultimately being only a blip on the screen of God's history. didn't last too long before God picked it up and put it down and moved on. Why? Because ultimately all things are about God's glory and His own person. So, notice the next phrase, who is and was and is to come. This phrase is found some, I think around five times in the book of Revelation... Just thinking of chapter 1, verse 4, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. And this title actually is a play on the divine name of God. Does anybody know what that divine name of God is in the Old Testament? Yahweh, right? That's the personal name of God. How is it expounded upon? I am that I am. And then in John's gospel, you have how many I am statements? Who is Jesus Christ claiming to be? Before Abraham was, I am. So we see this connection of bringing over the name of Yahweh to the New Testament and I am that I am. So it is a Greek way of expressing the Hebrew reality that he is the one who is and was and is to come. So in the book of Revelation it is important because of God's covenant name. But it's also important because it is profoundly in time related. So I I, I skipped saying eschatology one more time. But it is end time related. If he's the one who was and is and is to come, don't y'all think he's got the future in his hands? Right? So it's end time related. It is a title that focuses on God's ultimate goal in history. So he is the one who has always been. He is the one who is present with us right now. And he is the one who is coming again. But let me show you a little wrinkle. Chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Folks, you know that's the goal of history. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. That's where we're moving. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But look at this. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Drop down to chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters saying, Just are just are you, O holy God, who is and who was. Folks, last time I read that, there's something missing. In both of those. Who was and is. The is to come is missing. You know why? Because in the book of Revelation, just like today, folks, he's already come. Y'all do realize that the Son of God came down at Bethlehem. Are y'all awake? Jesus Christ is not waiting to reign, folks. He reigns today. He's the Lord God, the King. I mean, this thing of thinking that we're just sitting around waiting one day for Christ to reign, get that out of your mind. He has all authority today. Don't think for a moment just because you see these things out there in the world going on that God is not in control, folks. Revelation is designed for you to see the real scene behind the scenes of this world. We need to keep our mind focused upon that. So I would say that from John's perspective, he leaves it out because the one has already come. But don't make the mistake to think that he's not the one who is to come again. Why? Because he is coming again. It clearly teaches this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He is coming again. Okay, let me move forward. Next expression. Lord God the Almighty. Use 1 8, 4 8, 11, 17, 5 3, 16 7, 19 6, and 21 22. It combines the Hebrew word Adonai, Adonai, Elohim, and Lord of hosts. But when it was brought over to the Greek, it was translated Pontus, Pontus Praetor. Huh. God the King, the Almighty. You know, praetor means power or might and pontus means is everything. So he's the Lord God, the all-powerful one. Our God, folks, has unrivaled sovereignty. Now that doesn't mean that he's just the abstract principle behind the scenes. It means he is working all things, Ephesians 1, seven, according to his purpose. He is actively working. That's what, that, what, that is what unrivaled sovereignty means. Does anybody know the two main words that the Caesars wanted to be called when they became the emperor. One is, you must say Caesar is Curios Lord. but you know what the other one is? Pontus praetor. Wanting to take the place and wanting to be unrivaled in their sovereignty. But I want to remind you that whether it was Nero or Domitian, neither one of them is Curios and neither one of them is the Almighty. It is our God. So, one final description, and this one's really important, and that is the throne of God. In the book of Revelation, this is vitally important. So, this is the one central symbol of the entire book. It is used 34 times in the book of Revelation. Where would the citizens of Rome believe that the throne was during that time? In Rome. However, there is a throne, folks, that is not in Rome nor in Washington, it is in heaven. Turn with me to chapter 4, quickly. You're going to have to listen fast for me to get all this in. Chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. What language? With one. Look, not multiple. With one seated on the throne. Last time I checked, that's not Nero, not Domitian, not Joe Biden, not even Donald Trump. There's only one on the throne. And this is ultimate reality. It is ultimate. So this chapter will begin to proceed... And the entire chapter of chapter 4 is about worship to the enthroned God. Folks, don't you understand when you come in here on Sunday morning, I don't care what's going on in your life and how bad you feel. If you're fair to middling, or you are good or you're bad? Don't you realize that you're worshiping the king who is on his throne right now? And so here it is when you get to verses 9 and 10. Look how awesome this is. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Unrivaled sovereignty. So in chapter 4, God's sovereignty is seen as it already is fully acknowledged in heaven. But folks, don't you all realize that what is fully acknowledged in heaven is going to be fully acknowledged on earth one day? The reality is the way it is in heaven. But one of these days, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it already is in heaven. All of heaven knows who the king is. And one of these days on earth, everybody's going to know who the king is. So, it's coming in the future. So, in the end, this will also prevail upon the earth. But today, the powers of evil challenge God's rule, don't they? Uh, it's, it's absolutely true. What is true in heaven, though, will become true on earth. So, John is taken up to heaven. He sees God on the throne. He sees ultimate reality. In the midst of all of these earthly appearances, he sees God's glory, his rule... Think again with me about these titles. God rules everything. Even when Rome is unleashing all of the persecution upon the early church, and you can read all the chronicles of this, God was still in control. It is this God that is worthy of worship, even in the midst of persecution. Incidentally, as you go through the book of Revelation, what do you realize? Again, at the stage of every one of God's victory, it ends up immediately responding with worship. What will happen one day when Jesus Christ the Lord comes back? It will be the greatest worship service that you have ever seen. When he comes again. So this is reality. It's the way things really are. This is who who God is. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's the Lord God the Almighty. Now, what you see that looks like government today actually has an ultimate reality behind it. That's good news for me. And it should be good news for you. Let's finish this sermon by asking this question. Well, we understand that God reigns in heaven. We see the government today. We know that ultimate reality is behind what we see going on today. But does that mean in the present time we're not going to have some pain? And some suffering? You don't like hearing this in America because you've probably never had to suffer for the cause of Christ. But there's not an exception clause for the U.S. There's not an exception clause. You do understand that the Bible says that not only were you granted belief by God to believe the gospel. Philippians 1.29. But you were also granted suffering. As a gift. From God. As a matter of fact, the word granted is karyon, which comes from caris, which is a derivative of grace. So here's grace to you. God allowed you to believe, and he also is going to cause you to suffer. That's what the scripture says. So why do we think in the U.S. that there's an exception clause, and everybody else in the known world is going to suffer for the gospel, but we're not? Well, wake up. We're here. We're here in the U.S., and the fact of the matter is there's going to be persecution. Revelation 13. i got five minutes to preach Revelation 13. That is, if I'm going to get you out of here at 11.30. How hungry are y'all this morning? No, I'm going to go fast. Here we are. Who's the, ro- who's the ruling power? Rome. I know there's going to be all kinds of questions about the details when I read this. Don't ask me because I don't know. All right? But in, verse, in chapter 12, you're introduced to a dragon. And who is he? Well, he goes after the male child who is who? Christ the Lord. And then we know down in verse 2 of chapter 13, that the dragon gave his power to the first beast. And the dragon is no doubt Satan. Okay? So, chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. This should bring back images from Daniel, if you were here when I preached it. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And so what are we thinking of there? Immediately we're thinking conglomeration of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. This one's going to be a conglomeration. No question about it. This is the one with iron teeth, ten horns on its head. And that's no doubt the Roman Empire if you track with Daniel chapter 7. The dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Do you all see the counterfeit going on? You understand that the name Malachi, last book of the New Testament, means who is like the Lord. And so here's the counterfeit. Well, who is like the beast? So it's counterfeit worship, it's uh, taking the place of who God really is in this world, who can fight against it. Now verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints. Are you all ready? Are you ready for this? And to conquer them. Even though I know this is first century Rome, this is coming again in the future. It already exists. This is generation to generation understanding of a political power. Wake up. Get your head out of the sand. Right? And the Bible says, and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Check this out. Are you all looking at the Bible? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Think about this for a moment. The beast is in fact a counterfeit to the Lamb of God. The dragon, Satan himself, is a counterfeit to God the Father. The false prophet that we're going to be introduced to in just a moment is a counterfeit Holy Spirit... And the harlot of verse 17 and 18 of the ones who actually worship Satan is actually a counterfeit bride, which is the church. That, that we know. You understand that here's our arch enemy, Satan, seeking to counterfeit all of God's good world. Clearly seen. What happens to those who refuse to give supreme loyalty? To the beast, which I believe is either at that time the Roman emperor or the Roman empire. If you refused it, what happened? And who is fueling this empire? The dragon. If you refused it, what happened to you? Yes. And folks, we know the history. They were martyred for the faith. Revelation 12, 11, How will you overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of your testimony. And loving not your life even to the end. And we see it worked out here. We know that in the first century Christians were not put to death because they believed in Christ. They were put to death because they would not say Caesar is Lord. You understand that Rome didn't care what God you had. They actually had a pantheon of gods. However, if you would not give allegiance to the state, to that political power, then you died. But Christians would not succumb. They would not say Caesar is Lord. It was only Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord and him alone. So one thing they did command was that loyalty to the state. Christians were commanded to give allegiance to Caesar. Revelation is the word of exhortation for believers to remain steadfast even unto death. And note this folks. Does this sound like Ephesians 1.4? That God chose you in him before the foundation of the world? Don't you know? Do you see who takes the mark? Do you see the ones that take allegiance to worship Satan? Who is it? those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those names that were written in the Lamb's book of life before the world ever existed. So it is my theological position that God the Father gifted the Son, the Lamb who was slain prior to the foundation of the world, God the Father gifted the elect to the Son. There's no other way to translate that text. Who didn't take the mark? The ones whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the world. Now that speaks something about your position in Christ. Seven times in the New Testament believers are identified as those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 3.5, 17.8, 20.12 and 15, 21.27 and Philippians 4.3. This is a divine registry that God inscribed your name in if you're saved. Before the foundation of the world. So just think about this. The elect will not be deceived. Boy this is good news for people who really know Christ. The elect will not be deceived. You're doubly given that. Why? Because you're in the registry of the Lamb who atoned for your sin. That's what the word means. He was slain before the foundation of the world. The blood of Christ guarantees your salvation. That's not all. Your your name is written in that registry, and you've been elect from the foundation of the world. So in the words of John MacArthur, you've got this double, it's doubly good for the believer. The atoning work of Christ guarantees that you will not give in to the beast, and your name written in the Lamb's book of life, and the election from the foundation of the world. That's good stuff, right? Some of you are really confused now. I told you Revelation was difficult, right? But check out those insights. Again, in, in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. Listen to the word of the Lord. I'm getting close to finishing. The Bible says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Look at verse 12. Here is a call for endurance of the saints Those who keep the commandments of their God in faith in Christ. Look back in verse 13. Verse 10. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Folks, are y'all getting the message? What if you are connected with the beast? What happens to you? Torment forever and ever. Did y'all see that in verse chapter 14? What is the call to people who really know Christ? Your names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. And make sure you have faith. And make sure you endure. Times are going to get tough, folks. It's going to get increasingly more difficult. And for the sake of time, I wish I could preach on and show you every bit of it. But beginning in verse 11, you've got a beast coming up out of the sea. So, no, I'm sorry. The first one is a beast rising out of the sea. The second is a beast coming up from the earth. So if beast number one is either the emperor or Rome... Beast number two has to be a propagandist of worship to beast number one. And is this a person? Is it an antichrist? Well, you know what? Antichrist already lives in this world, First John, John, right? The spirit of the antichrist lives in this world. But there's coming a day, uh, well, we're living in a day where we see our government as an entity that wants to be worshiped. No civilization, no democratic, no civilization in this world exists without some kind of religious tendencies. Don't y'all know that? Even if it's an atheistic state, it is still highly religious. Just, just look at the Mao's dynasty in China. They had their own little book. They had their own little sayings. They had their own little ways. But in the end, it led to destruction. And folks, don't forget this. There's no possible way... For elected le- re- uh, leaders, people who are humans, and mankind, not to have some kind of infusement into it of demonic activity. Do you understand Daniel, right? When there was a territorial spirit in some sense. And, and the angel says, I've been wrestling against the prince of Persia. And that wasn't a man. It was a demonic spirit. Okay, so I'm trying to get you to understand something. The government wants you to believe it's your Savior. And that's exactly what's going on in verse 13. He's calling worship. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and earth in front of the people. And there are so many gullible people in this. Do you ever just get amazed at how gullible people are? I, I, maybe we shouldn't be thinking like that today. because But folks, people are so gullible. And look, all of this is counterfeit to the true king. When you see all these things, uh, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So here's the propaganda. So if the first is the world power, the second beast is going to be the world cult. We're in it today. So many people in this world view the government as a savior. And it's always about deification of the person. Not the people in the U.S., but deification of the person who's actually ruling the day. I don't care if you're Republican. I don't care if you're Democratic. You better not put your faith in any world government. You better put your faith in the king, the very one who is behind the scenes, moving everything in this world to its conclusion. So here's the deal. Our God is working out His counsel and His sovereign will over the Hitlers, over the Stalins, over the Mao's, over the Clintons, over the Bushes, over the Obamas, and even the Bidens. Our God is working. And He's the ruler. Amen? Now, some of us say evil world, evil Biden, evil government. Let's just withdraw. Go into our monasteries and be holy and happy. The book of Revelation will not allow you to do that. It says endure and be faithful. Right? Endure and be faithful. We don't have permission to withdraw as Christians. We can't hide away. The clear picture is that we're in this world but we're not of it. The clear picture is God calls you to be salt that arrests corruption and light that dispels darkness. Amen? Listen to Jeremiah 29.7. But seek the welfare of the city where God has placed you. Where were the Israelites placed? In bondage. In captivity. And what are we supposed to do in that? Well, where God has placed you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your own welfare. Right? We, we have to. We're citizens ultimately of heaven. And that's a reminder. As citizens of this particular state, the United States of America. You are a Christian first. We are believers first. We can never allow the state to take ownership of our families or our churches. We belong to the one who is and was, was and is and is to come. Folks, at some time or another, our lack of supreme loyalty and religious devotion to Caesar will bring us the wrath of Caesar. There's going to come a day when I can't preach Genesis 19 and tell you that homosexuality is a sin and that God destroyed an entire civilization because of it. It's coming where I will not be able to publicly tell you that homosexuality is a sin, even though the Bible clearly teaches that it is. And I'm not picking on homosexuality because if you're unfaithful to your wife, you're an adulterer. If you're having fornication outside of marriage, you are a sinner. Just as equal to the homosexual. Y'all looking at me kind of strange. Don't you know that all sin, sexual sin against God, is sin? No matter if it's divorce, no matter if it's marital unfaithfulness or homosexuality, whatever that might be. But I'm trying to remind you of something. Folks, we are in a battle not just for the soul of our country, we are in the battle for souls of people, right? That need to know the king. Now let me finish right here. I'm done. Y'all, I didn't get to preach last week. And you know, that's the first time I haven't preached all year because I even preached in Guatemala, right? So I was kind of nervous at like 10.30. I was like shaking, thinking I'm supposed to be doing something right now. But Revelation, listen to this, for all of us in here. Look, listen, clearly. Verse 5 at the end. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom of priests to his God forever and ever. Amen. You know what that term uh, means? To loose, actually, to him who loves us and has freed us. By the way, herein is love. Not that we loved him first, but that he first loved us. And gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. No greater love can be known than a man lay down his life for his. But don't you know that Jesus Christ died in your place that's the kind of love he has for us. But notice that word, freed us from our sins. It's the, it is the Greek word luo, and it means to loose. And it has to do with releasing you from your chains. Somebody in this room today, I guarantee you, has not been released from sin's chains. If you died today, you would die chained in your sin. Folks, hear me clearly. Jesus Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree so that you could turn from sin and self and trust Jesus Christ only for your salvation. I don't mind telling you this. If you're connected with the beast, you will be in torment forever. The only people that will survive and be in heaven with the king are those whose blood, those whose sins have been atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, would you come to Christ? Would you trust Jesus only? Folks, His unrivaled sovereignty ought to make you want to bow before Him and worship the King. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You today. Lord, I know the last part of the sermon was... I had to hurry through it because of the depth of it. But Father, it's Your Word. May Your saints take up the Scripture and begin to read Revelation 13 and 14. Father... Here's what we clearly see. You, Lord Jesus, rule. You have all authority. You're not some abstract deity sitting behind the scenes. You're actively involved in this world, accomplishing your goal. You are the Alpha and the Omega. We also see clearly, Lord God, that saints are called to endure and to be faithful. We also see clearly that those who worship the beast will not be before the Lamb in heaven, will not be your worshipers. As a matter of fact, they will be in torment in hell forever. Lord God, help us see clearly from your word that we're not to allow any government to take our families or our church or the place that you have in our lives. God, help us as a church to not compromise. Help us, Lord God. If there's someone here that is lost, may they hear those words. You are the one who loved us and who loosed us from our sins and made us a kingdom of priests. Lord, thank you, Father, for that truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Would you respond to the Lord?
1: Come
0: just as
1: you are. you yeah.
0: Davis. And what did you just say to me right before I said that? Who's your daughter? Dawn. That's Major. right. Don Major. Don Major. They're from Illinois. They've been here about six weeks. Yeah. And they want to join this church. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Alright. Gordon and Ruth Ann Davis, they both know Jesus as their Lord and they didn't mince any words about that. they follow in Believer's Baptism yes. and they want to unite with this church family. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. All right, BJ and Brenda Chapman, come on up here. Come on down, all right? I uh, want you to pray for Mr. BJ. He's dealing with a little Bell's Palsy. And, uh, you know, he's a preacher. He uh, just retired from pastoring. How many years in all? Forty. Forty. Man. Well, that's about as old as I am. but within 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'll be 51 this week on Wednesday. I've stretched that a little bit. Still, <laughs> praise God. Uh, I... When I was praying, thinking about how blessed I am for God to send men of God like this into our church family. So pray he gets well so he can help the teaching ministry of our church. Amen. So BJ and Brenda Chapman, they've been coming for some time. And they both know the Lord as Savior. They fall in Believer's Baptism. And they're also coming from a sister Southern Baptist church in Springfield. And the Smiths are coming from a sister Southern Baptist church in Illinois. Davises. Sorry, Davises. Yes. All right. God's is good, isn't he? Amen. Oh, amen. We'll, we'll have y'all walk back there toward Don and Chris and put you out in the hallway and let people greet y'all, all right? Okay. Well, the Lord is good. There is uh, no service, of course, planned. This afternoon, we've been asked about the fall, and Lord willing, we're going to kick up some, uh, maybe not every Sunday night, but we're going to kick up some Sunday night services in the fall. I uh, hope you enjoy your family today. Uh, just blessed. Uh, I, it's hard for me to talk. Uh, that's a good man. That's my brother, Jeff. Uh, he's a deacon at his church, and he loves the Lord. And that's wife Cindy, and that's my nephew Matthew. Yesterday, Matthew had a bug fly after him on the golf course in that luscious mane that he has. He looked like a pony running around with that. And I, it was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen. Just, and I made him run around the house, you know, with that hair flying around. His wife's name is Hallie, and they live in the Atlanta area, which means they need a lot of prayers, right? But he loves the Lord. Great family. Jeff, would you voice a closing prayer?
1: Okay, listening together this verse about the church and what we're called to do. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not pain By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free. For the blood of Jesus Christ, who has resurrected me.